Good morning, everyone. Uh, can I invite you to turn to Hosea, chapter 8, in your Bibles? It's page 905 uh, in the Bibles that should be in the pews. This is our uh, third week in Hosea. We have one more to go after today. Uh, and last Sunday, we explored and thought about what does it look like whenever the people of God become complacent? What does it look like whenever the people of God make poor choices and then end up tragically compromised? And in chapters 4, 5 and 6, we listened as God via the prophet Hosea identified three things that were missing from the lives of his people. Seven things that should have been missing but were in fact sadly all too present. Plus, we then considered the one thing that God desires. So if you like, there was like an entire summary of the sermon last week. Three, seven, one. So the three things that were missing were what? Can anybody remember any of the three things that were missing from the people of God? Faithfulness, knowledge of God, and love. No faithfulness, said God. No love, no acknowledgement of me in the land. The seven things that sadly weren't missing were inappropriate language, lying, killing, stealing, adultery, breaking all the boundaries, all the guidelines. If they felt good, they did it. And then last but not least, violence at a totally unacceptable level. And then the one thing that God desired, I desire mercy or steadfast love, not sacrifice. In other words, and we teased this out, he wanted their words and their worship to be real. God just longs for the worship we bring to come from our hearts. And and only at at the end of the day does he know if it has, for example, this morning, come from our hearts. Unfortunately, in Hosea's day, all he found was mere lip service and empty ritual. Now, last Sunday, I did say that from chapter 4 right through to and including chapter 10, there's not a lot to celebrate. There's not a lot of hope. The challenges to these people's attitude and behavior just keep coming. And therefore, God's warnings of impending judgment don't let up. And so this morning, as we or as I attempt to unpack Hosea 8, 9, and 10, we're actually back in a pretty dark place. The material we have to work with this morning is bleak. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Like, seriously, David, (laughs) would there be any chance? Could we not have something this week a little more Upbeat. It's been a tough enough week. It's like the, I'm here. It's cost me a lot to be here. And yet now you're just about to share a whole pile of doom and gloom. And in fact, for some of you, you've really enjoyed the service up to now. And all of a sudden, I'm going to put a downer and everything. And I, I do recognize that. And I have struggled a wee bit with this during. In fact, I've struggled a lot with this during the week, if I'm honest. And yet I've got to accept, and this is something we said last year right throughout our Essential Word series, and it's something I know so many of us believe, that all Scripture's God-breathed, all Scripture's useful. Even the low points are profoundly instructive, or can be, in order to expand our understanding of God 
and also to deepen our awareness of what does it mean for us today, 2011, to live as the people of God in our context. And so sometimes we do have to turn to the low points. And so although I would love to skip these chapters and just get to chapter 11, because in chapter 11 we're back to the outrageous love of God for his people, well, I'm not going to. And so I'm just going to spend the next 20 minutes reflecting on mess and on the dire situation that these people find themselves in. And I'm praying, and I honestly am praying, and I would love you to join me in praying, that God will keep speaking to us through his uncomfortable word. So let's start at verse 1 in Hosea 8. And there we are confronted with this image. It's on the screen. It's a disturbing image. Now, some of your translations, and particularly the Bible, uh, the, pew in the, or the Bible in the Pew translation doesn't quite capture this. But actually what it really implies is this. Blow the trumpets, sound the alarm, vultures are circling over God's people. It's a really ominous symbol. And, and I don't need to explain it because we all know what it means. The time has come. The end of life as they know it is now imminent. The vulture, which turns out to be Assyria, is about to pounce. It's circling. It's waiting and it's trying to get out of that cupboard in there. Uh, not sure what's going on in there. Somebody might want to go and check just in case somebody's stuck. Uh, but why is this? Why is the vulture circling? Why is the vulture about to pounce on God's people? Well, look at the rest of verse 1. Because the people have broken my covenant, they have rebelled against my law. You see, years ago, God had entered into a covenant relationship with his people. But that covenant relationship, and this is a key thing I'm going to talk about this morning, it involved choices on the part of the people. Look at this from Deuteronomy 30. Today, I have given you the choice, says God, between life and death. I have given you the choice between blessings and curses. And so God says, now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice that you will make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying him and committing yourself firmly to him. This is key to your life. Choices. Life, when it all boils down to it, is just a whole bunch of choices. From then until now, the people of God had been making numerous choices, but it turns out most of them were poor. For years they had been choosing to do life their way, without reference to God. And so what do they find? they find themselves staring into the sky, watching the vulture lick its lips. And so what now? What do they do as they stand there? How do they respond as Hosea brings this bleak image? Look at verse 2. They start crying out to God. Which is perfectly understandable, isn't it? Because whenever you find yourself in a really bad place, that's often what you do. Cry out to God. 
But for these people, and this is what's so hard about this, it's too late. It's too late. In any way, the insincerity of their cry is sickening. Israel cries out to me, says God here. Our God, we acknowledge you. But it's not true. Because as we discovered last week, there's no acknowledgement of God in the land. It's not how you feel. You don't acknowledge me. You're only acknowledging me because there's a vulture flying over your head. It's empty words. Look at verse 3. Here's why it's empty words. Because Israel, you've rejected what's good. See, as far as God's concerned, actions do speak louder than words. These people might claim to acknowledge God. And yet their lives, their lifestyles, and their choices tell a completely different story. And that's one of the most profound challenges of the Christian faith. That we can claim to live in God. But that means we've got to walk as Christ walked. Our actions will speak louder than our words. Don't just say we love God with our entire being. Don't just say we love our neighbor as ourselves. How does that actually reveal itself? There's got to be a tangible connection between lip and life. Between what you say and what you do. In the lives of these people, there was a glaring disconnect. The contradictions between what they said and what they did was all too obvious, it was all too confusing. And to quote the second half of verse 3, because you've rejected what's good, Israel, an enemy's going to pursue you. The vulture is just going to keep circling. And as Hosea speaks the word of the Lord, he actually goes on to explain what has been the problem. He identifies two things. Two things in verse 4 regarding their attitude and their behavior is highlighted. For a start, they had decided to make key political decisions on their own. And secondly, they had opted to worship their own gods. So they have set up kings without my consent. They chose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves. These people wanted to do everything their way, just independent of God. And so they wanted to elect people to significant positions within their community, within their society, without consulting God. It's a familiar story. And they also wanted to create other gods that would become the objects of their worship that would actually take the place of the one true God. And so if you like, God's case against these people was increasingly watertight. And as he keeps speaking, we come to another one of those sort of timeless and universal truths, not just of life, but of the Christian faith. And that is this. Everything we do, every choice we make has a consequence. Verse 7. They sow the wind. They reap the whirlwind. It's a bit of a precursor to something the Apostle Paul said in the New Testament. People reap what they sow. The choices that we make and the decisions that we take, they impact our lives. And they impact the lives of those around us. And throughout the Bible, God 
emphasizes not only the importance of making good choices, godly choices, wise choices, but God actually goes out of his way to stress what will happen if you don't. God says, listen, you will reap what you sow. You will have to face up to the consequences of every single choice you make. Back to the covenant in Deuteronomy that God made with these people. God actually said, listen, see if you will obey me. See if you will obey and follow my guidelines, then you'll be blessed. Not only will you be blessed, you'll defeat your enemies. Not only will you defeat your enemies, but your crops will be successful. But you see, if you choose to do your own thing, this is all in Deuteronomy. If you choose to do your own thing as the people of God, then, for example, you'll sow much seed, but you'll harvest nothing. And even if you happen to produce some stuff, foreigners will come and eat it. God also said that if you don't acknowledge me, if you don't revere me, if you don't worship me as the one true God, then you'll find yourself back in Egypt. In other words, all the choices you make have got consequences. Good if you do the right thing. Not so good if you don't. Now, fast forward to Hosea 8. Because the prophet picks up on this. Look at the second half of verse 7. Where he says, you've chosen to do your own thing, so guess what? The stalks of grain wither, and they produce nothing for you to eat. And if there is any grain, foreigners will eat it. It's all coming true. Choices, consequences, actions, consequences. God said it. It's rolling itself out. Jump down to verse 12. I wrote for them, says God, many things of my law, but they regarded them as alien. And so what's going to happen? Look at verse 13. They will return to Egypt. Maybe not literally to Egypt, but they're heading back to slavery. Major consequences. You sow the wind, people of God, you will reap the whirlwind. For these people, exile, scattered, lost identity, no longer the people of God. It's quite a whirlwind. Let's now fast forward even further to the New Testament because this still applies to us at a certain level. Paul, writing to a local Christian church, to us, says, people reap what they sow. Those who sow, remember, read the Christians, those who sow to please their sinful nature, and we still can't do this as Christians. Those who sow to please their sinful nature, well, from that nature they will reap destruction. Those who sow to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Every single one of us here this morning has got choices to make regarding our spiritual well-being. It's just, just the way it works. We can still sow to please the sinful nature. And Paul spelled out what that looked like. You can still practice sexual immorality as a Christian. You can still gossip. You can still walk out of here and rip another Christian to pieces. Criticize. Voice off. Of course you can still do that. And you do it, you're sowing to your sinful nature. But you can still do it. 
And see, whenever you make those sort of choices, and it is a choice, nobody makes us do it, but whenever we make those choices, we reap destruction. We damage our relationship with God. We damage our relationship with our Christian brothers and sisters. It breaks the heart of God. Alternatively, says Paul, you can sow to the Spirit. You can choose to do good. You can choose to make God-honoring choices. And what will happen if you do that? You'll discover life, eternal life, life in all its fullness. The question is, as I look back over the past week, what kind of seeds have I sown? What kind of choices have I made? Thankfully, because of Jesus, we can be forgiven for the poor choices we make. If we come in open confession and genuine repentance, total forgiveness is available. But let's not forget, and I know some people struggle with this, but please hear this. Total forgiveness is available, but let's not forget that we often still live with certain consequences of our poor choices. And for some people that's not easy. If only they could turn the clock back. They would choose differently. God has forgiven them for their poor choices, but they're now living with the consequences of those choices. Ultimately, for these particular people in Hosea's day, as I say, the vulture was circling. Their particular consequences were imminently extreme. But even so, and this is what's so sad, there was no desire to repent on their part. In fact, look at verse 14. Because Israel has reached the place where, I don't care, God. So what does it say? They'd forgotten their maker. And even though their situation was dire, They couldn't or didn't grasp the reality of it. And this becomes even more apparent as you come into the chapter 9. Look at the first verse because it seems for some bizarre reason that the Israelites are in party mode. And so God says, stop it. Do not rejoice, says God. Do not be jubilant. The fact is you have nothing to rejoice about. Look at verse 2. You're about to go hungry. Look at verse 3. You are going to lose the Lord's land. As a result of their poor choices, they were going to lose one of the most precious gifts God had given them, the promised land. And as Hosea keeps speaking this difficult word of God into their situation, it becomes apparent that they are really struggling with this. They don't like what they're hearing. And so they start attacking the prophet. Now, not physically, but verbally. And so in verse 7, you discover that they label Hosea a fool and a maniac. Incredibly derogatory terms. You see, people don't like it when they are confronted like this. Whenever you challenge anyone about the choices they're making, about the way they are living their lives, people don't like it. They go on the offensive or the defensive. Hosea was touching raw nerves all over the place. And these people were getting increasingly uncomfortable and they didn't want to acknowledge or face up to the truth of what they were hearing. And so rather than think it through, rather than hear it, rather than apply it to themselves, they decide, look, let's avoid the message, but I tell you what, let's attack the messenger. And throughout scripture, this happened time and time again. It happened to most of the prophets. It happened to John the Baptist. It happened to Jesus Christ. Don't like what you're saying. 
So we're going to attack you. And for us today, we believe that God still speaks. We as a church believe that passionately, that God still speaks via his word. The question is, are we listening? Are we prepared to listen? The temptation is that we dismiss difficult messages simply because we don't like the person who's bringing it. And so rather than than hearing it or considering that it may apply to us, we have a go at the person and we criticize them and we pick holes in them. Came across this uh, brief, simple prayer during the week as I prepared for this. thought it was brilliant. Loving God, give us the strength to listen constantly to your word. Insight to see past the messenger to the truth that lies beyond. And the courage to act upon what we hear. In Hosea's day, they reacted by labeling him a nutcase. But look at the next verse, because here you discover Hosea's understanding of himself. He describes himself as a watchman. You see, he knew what he had to do. He understood his role, that when danger was imminent, the task of a watchman was to sound the alarm. Now, what people did in response to that was their responsibility. Hosea was ringing alarm bells all over the place. He was trying to get people to face up to the reality of their situation. But as so often happened, the watchman was rejected by those he was trying to warn. And it still is so sad whenever the word of God falls in deaf ears. And whenever those who try to communicate it are ridiculed and ignored and attacked. And it still happens today. And as it still happened over the last 24 hours. And in the next bit, we find God, we're nearly through, but in the next bit we find God doing something that lots of people do. I find this fascinating. God reminisces. He casts his mind back to better and happier days. Look at verse 10 of chapter 9. O Israel, see when I first found you, it was like finding grapes in the desert. You don't tend to find grapes in a barren place. You might come across a patch of ropey grass grass or a spiky plant if you're lucky. But to find grapes in the desert, well, that was incredible. And via this imagery, God was making it clear that he delighted in his people when he first found them. But as you read on, you discover what he now finds. Verse 16 is radically different. Israel is blighted, says God. Your root is withered, and you bear no fruit. Verse 17, Hosea says, and and this is hard, and so my God will reject you. It's another one of those timeless truths of the Christian faith. God looks for fruit in the lives of those who claim to live in him. Those who truly belong to the living God should be characterized by their fruit production. In Hosea's day, nothing. There is no fruit. No positive, no refreshing produce is evident. So tragic when you come across people like that where there's no love 
And there's no joy. And there's no peace. And there's no patience. And there's no kindness. And there's no gentleness. And there's no uh, faithfulness. And there's no self-control. And in chapter 10, you discover the central reason why this is the case. And God can see the problem as only God can. And none of us can see this in each other to the extent that God can see it. But what God says in verse 2 is, your heart is false. Your heart's deceitful. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. It's drifted. It's not in it. It's compromised. And therefore, what's spilling out of your lives, and this is a truth that is, we, we referred to it last week, Jesus picked up on it. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. But what is spilling out of your lives is distressing. It's no fruit. And therefore, your immediate future is bleak. And why? Because you reap what you sow. And as I finish... I want to go back to that point. And I want to go back to that point because Hosea goes back to that point in verse 12. And as a verse, it stands on its own and it is a beautiful verse. Sow for yourselves righteousness, says God. In other words, do the right thing, people of God. Make good choices. Remain faithful to me. Remain faithful to my word. Take this to heart. Take to heart what God is asking of you. And what will happen, according to verse 12? You will reap the fruit of unfailing love. Secondly, says God, break up your unplowed ground. In other words, make sure your life is ready. For God to work in it. Prepare to hear and respond to the word of God. Don't let your heart harden. Don't let your heart become dry. Be receptive. Be teachable. Why? Because it is time to seek the Lord. And it still is. It's time to engage with your God. To re-engage with your God. Who longs to shower his righteousness upon you. I find that a very moving verse of advice and hope. And yet, look at verse 13 to see what the people did. But instead, you have planted wickedness. In other words, you haven't sown righteousness. You've just planted wickedness. You've decided to do your own thing. You've decided to go your own way and rebel. And therefore... Here's what you're going to reap. You're going to reap evil. And rather than prepare your hearts and seek God, look at this. You've swallowed a bunch of lies. You've ate the fruit of deception. And not only that, you've sought yourselves. You haven't sought me. You have depended on your own strength, says God. And the only thing that's going to rain down on you is the blows of your enemy. The vulture is about to pounce. Because, people of God, you really do reap what you sow. With your choices come consequences. For the Israelites of Hosea's day, this was a difficult lesson to learn. Sadly, no desire to take it on board. 
But what about us this morning? Because you see, these timeless truths still apply. And the question is, will I take them to heart? And that is my choice. Let's pray together. Father, I recognize that your word at times is difficult. It is uncomfortable. It is bleak. It is confusing. It is disturbing. And yet I thank you for that. Because it is living. It is like a surgeon's scalpel. It rips us open. It exposes us for who we are. Not to leave us in that place, but God, so that we can be healed. So that we can be put back together again. So that we can live as we have been called to live. As your people. As people who are faithful. As people who do love. As people who do acknowledge you. As people who take sin in our lives seriously. As people who come in repentance and faith. As people who desire mercy, not sacrifice. And so God, as we leave here this morning, I pray that you would help us to make good choices this week. We would sow to the Spirit, to please the Spirit. And we would not sow to please the sinful nature. God, we need your help. Thank you for the gift of your Spirit. May we walk in step with him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.